Hello and welcome to the Night Sky Guide for November. My name is Melissa Holbert and I'm an Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory. Before we start our Night Sky Tour, make sure you download the November Sky Map from our website www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash blog or if you have one, use your star map from our book The Australian Sky Guide. There is a lot of astronomical information in this book as well as the monthly star maps. Armed with your sky map and a small torch with some red cellophane covering it, find a nice dark place away from the glare of the street lights and make sure you know your cardinal directions north, south, east and west. Remember that the sun rises in the east, moves through the northern sky during the day and sets in the west, or a small compass will also point you in the right direction. Pick a comfortable spot, either on a rug or a deck chair that you can lay back in and wait about five to 10 minutes to allow your eyes to adapt to the darkness. Look towards the north. High in the northern sky is Pegasus, the winged horse from mythology, probably with its origins in both Mesopotamian and Etruscan star law. Pegasus was said to have been born from the blood of Medusa the Gorgon after she was slain by Perseus from Greek mythology. He is also associated with poetic inspiration in Greek mythology with a fountain that was sacred to the Nine Muses, which was created when he stamped his hoof on Mount Helicon. Pegasus was principally the steed of Bellerophon, and in a dream, Athene appeared to Bellerophon with a golden bridle and advised him to ride Pegasus. However, some legends say that Perseus rode the winged horse when rescuing Andromeda. Pegasus is easy to find, with the best known feature of this constellation, the aptly named Great Square of Pegasus. It is rather large at over 15 degrees in width and 13 degrees in height, but despite its size, there are relatively few bright naked eye stars within the square. Working out degrees in the sky is quite easy. Hold your arm out towards the sky and make a fist. From one side of your fist to the other, this is 10 degrees. Hold your other arm out and spread your hand out as wide as you comfortably can. So the opposite of a fist, from your little finger to your thumb is 20 degrees. Put your hands side by side and you now have 30 degrees. This does work for everyone as your arm length is proportional to your hand size. Four stars outline the square and in the past all four were a part of the constellation. However, Delta Pegasi is now known as Alpha Andromedae. This star was also known as Syra, meaning navel, and marked the navel of the horse. Pegasus is the right way up for us, so we see the neck and head of the horse stretching towards the west and what appears to be his back legs towards the northeast. One interesting object is M15 or NGC 7078, a magnitude 6 globular cluster, easily visible in binoculars and small telescopes. Medium to large apertures will resolve some of the outer regions of this cluster and a dense core. M15 lies about 33,000 light years away. Remember I mentioned the horse's rear legs earlier? Let's go back to those. The legs are a part of the constellation Andromeda, the daughter of Queen Cassiopeia in Greek mythology. If you are away from city lights, then look carefully at this area of the sky. You might see an elongated fuzzy patch of light with your unaided eye. This is the Andromeda galaxy and is the most distant object visible to the unaided eye, lying about 2.4 million light years from us. 
though recent data from the Hipparchus satellite has suggested that this distance might be closer to 3 million light years. While a fascinating sight with just your eyes, if you have binoculars or a small telescope, then a most amazing sight awaits you. The dark dust lanes of the spiral arms, a bright core, and if you are lucky, you might pick up one or both of its companion galaxies. To the east and slightly south of Pegasus is Cetus, the fourth largest constellation in the sky. Cetus has been depicted as a variety of animals, but is generally depicted as a sea monster or dragonfish, but some refer to it merely as a great whale. Cetus is one of the most ancient constellations in the sky, as it was Ptolemy who originally assigned 22 stars to this constellation. It contains a dual box of coloured stars for both telescope and binoculars users alike. South of Cetus you will see the brilliant star Achenar, which means the river's end, as it marks the end of the river Eridanus. Follow Eridanus towards the east, and there rising in the sky is our familiar signpost of summer skies, Orion the Hunter. In Greek mythology, Orion was a hunter of great skill and boasted that he could kill all living animals. Gaia, the earth goddess, was alarmed by his statement and fearing for all the animals on earth, she sent a scorpion to kill him. Orion was stung on the shoulder but was revived and placed in the stars along with the scorpion. This entire myth is played out in the stars each year. As Scorpius the scorpion rises in the east, Orion sets in the west defeated. When Scorpius sets in the west, the healer Ephucus crushes the scorpion into the earth and revives Orion so that he can rise in the east again. Orion appears in many cultures, even the ancient Egyptians saw Orion as Osiris, god of the underworld and of regeneration. If you're having difficulty picking out the hunter, then look for the saucepan. This is a familiar group of stars for those of us in the southern hemisphere and is Orion's belt and sword. Orion is on his side as he rises above the eastern horizon. The middle point of light in the handle of the saucepan, or the sword, is the famous Orion Nebula or M42. It is one of late spring's most magnificent sights and will keep observers using binoculars or a telescope enthralled as you follow the swirls and loops of gas and dust in this active stellar nursery. Stars are forming out of the gas in this nebula which stretches about 20 light years in diameter and is 1,500 light years away. To the south of the saucepan you should see the red supergiant star Betelgeuse which is 500 times larger than our own star, the Sun. Or, if we were to place Betelgeuse where our Sun is, at the centre of our solar system, then the edge of the star would be near Jupiter's orbit. Betelgeuse is the shoulder or armpit of Orion and is about 427 light years away. To the north of the saucepan and diagonally opposite Betelgeuse is a brilliant white star, Rigel, one of Orion's knees. Rigel is a blue-white supergiant that shines 60,000 times brighter than our own sun. Rigel also has a small companion star, which is best seen through a telescope, though if seeing conditions are not the best, small telescopes will struggle to see the companion through the glare of Rigel. Let's return to the belt of Orion and follow its line to the west, where we come to the back of a sideways V. This V is the head of Taurus the bull and appears to be charging at Orion. Like Cetus, Taurus is one of the most ancient constellations in our skies, and like Orion, is also steeped in Greek mythology. It is said to represent the bull Zeus changed into to carry Princess Europa off to Crete.
back to the V, which is part of a large open star cluster visible in binoculars called the Hyades. One of Taurus's eyes is an orange giant star called Aldebaran, which means the follower. It follows the Pleiades, a wonderful open star cluster that can be seen with your eyes to the northwest of the V. The Pleiades are known as the Seven Sisters, as seven stars are readily seen with your eyes, but away from city lights up to 13 can be seen with the unaided eye. The whole cluster contains about 100 stars and binoculars are the best way to view this marvellous object. Another of Messier's objects, M1, is also in Taurus. M1 is best seen in telescopes and is known as the Crab Nebula, but is in fact the remnant of a star that exploded as a supernova on July 4, 1054 AD. How can we be so precise with the date? Chinese astronomers kept very accurate records of the night sky and recorded the position of a new star on their star maps on this date, the exact position in which we now find the Crab Nebula. Although the Crab Nebula is 7,000 light years away, the supernova was brighter than the planet Venus for weeks before it faded from view after almost two years. Even today, the nebula is still expanding at a rate of more than 5 million kilometres per hour. It emits radiation in all wavelengths from gamma rays to X-rays, UV, optical and infrared radiation and radio waves. It is exceptionally bright for a supernova remnant. The reason for this is its central pulsar which energises it. Careful studies of the Crab Nebula reveal a pulsar near the centre which emits at a rate of 30 pulses per second. Additional observations have shown that the pulse rate is slowing down. During the next thousand years, the pulse rate will fall to half its present value. Time to turn and look towards the south. Can you see our familiar signpost of the Southern Cross and pointers? Look low, close to the south horizon, and there they are. In late spring, these constellations are low in our evening skies, but by early morning, they are rising again to the positions we are familiar with. However, in their place are two cloud-like objects, a large one and a small one. You will need to be away from the city lights to see them. These are the Magellanic Clouds, named after the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. They are the two satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way. The larger of the two is in the constellation Dorado the Goldfish. In 1987, the large Magellanic Cloud was the site of the first supernova, visible to the unaided eye since 1604, which was observed by the astronomer Johannes Kepler. This supernova was named Supernova 1987A. The small Magellanic Cloud is in the constellation Tucana the Toucan. Sitting just beside the cloud is 47 Tuck, or NGC 104, a fine globular cluster, second only to Omega Centauri. It is a fuzzy object which at fourth magnitude can be easily seen with the unaided eye away from city lights. In ancient times it was thought to be a star and given a stellar designation. 47 Tuck has the same apparent size as the moon and has a tightly packed core. Telescopes with apertures of 100 millimetres or greater are required to even begin to resolve this globular. It is 16,000 light years away, making it one of the closest globulars to Earth. So what else can we look forward to seeing in the sky in November 2010? This month after sunset, look high in the northern sky for a brilliant star-like object. This is the planet Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. 
On the 16th, the 10-day-old waxing gibbous moon is close by. After sunset in the western sky, the smallest planet in our solar system is visible, Mercury. As the month progresses, Mercury will become easier to see as it climbs higher and higher in the western sky. On the 7th, the very slender one-day-old crescent moon will be just two degrees from Mercury. Both will be low on the horizon in the twilight, so a pair of binoculars may be needed to see them. Mars is also visible low in the western sky this month. On the 1st, Mars will appear between the Scorpion's claws, Delta and Beta Scorpii, with the three forming a straight line. On the 13th, the red planet will be four degrees to the right of Antares, a red giant star that's the heart of the Scorpion. Antares means rival of Mars, which is very apt given their similar colour. However, this year both Antares and Mars will appear to be almost the same magnitude. Mars will be slightly fainter than Antares. So this month, Antares really will rival Mars. November also has something in store for all you early birds. In the eastern pre-dawn sky, Venus and Saturn return around the middle of the month. Venus will be about four degrees south of Spica, a bright magnitude one star in the constellation of Virgo. Interestingly, Spica is believed to have been the star used by Hipparchus to prove the precession of the equinoxes. Saturn will be about 15 degrees to the north of Venus. This month I have two wild cards for all you daredevils, the first of which is the Taurids, both north and south meteor showers. They are associated with comet 2P Enki and are best seen from late evening to early morning. When comets pass close to the sun, they leave a trail of small particles and dust behind. When the Earth passes through this trail, we see lots of meteors appearing to come from one area of the sky. This is called the radiant, and each shower is named after the constellation or bright star near which the radiant appears. The Taurids are unusual in that they have a main double radiant, which is visible from the 25th of September through to the 25th of November, and there is no well-defined peak in shower activity. While maximum activity occurs on the 5th of November for the Taurids south, and on the 11th for the Taurids north, maximum usually lasts for about a week, with an hourly rate of about five. Though this is not a high hourly rate, the Taurids are usually bright and slow moving, making them perfect for astrophotography. The Taurids are also noted for their colourful flyballs, though these do not always occur every year. This year, the moon will not be visible in the morning sky for the weeks of Maxima, producing ideal observing conditions, particularly away from the city lights. Our second wild card is Comet 103P Hartley 2, which is expected to reach magnitude 4.5 towards the end of October. However, it is not well placed for viewing in the southern hemisphere until November, when it starts to move south of the equator. By this time, the comet is expected to drop by about a magnitude. However, it should still be a great sight in binoculars. Comet 103P Hartley 2 was discovered by Malcolm Hartley in March 1986 at Siding Spring Observatory in northwestern New South Wales and has an orbital period of 6.47 years. Each time this comet passes by, it is not always well placed for viewing, but this year's appearance is predicted to be the best in recent times. You may have noticed I have used words such as predicted and expected to while talking about Comet Hartley 2. Comets are notoriously unpredictable and often do the unexpected. So while we expect, there's that word again, the comet to put on a good show, it could equally be a fizzer. 
This reminds me of a famous quote by renowned comet hunter David Levy. Comets are like cats. They have tails and they do precisely what they want. Wishing you clear skies and seeing you next month under the stars. This has been Melissa Holbert from Sydney Observatory with the November Sky Map podcast.